Thank you so much for joining us on this special live stream where we will be updated by Norman, political scientist, author of uh, several books, including uh, Gaza. Um, uh, I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Um, the Holocaust industry. So welcome back, Norman. Well, thank you for having me, Kate and Aaron. Of course. And uh, we'll be taking questions for Norman live. And Norman has requested that actually he wants to encourage critical questions of him um, because that helps often, you know, bring the important issues to the forefront when, uh, when, you know, critical questions can be posed and that helps sort out sort of the complicated issues that might arise from this issue from the ongoing Israeli attack on Gaza. So we want to encourage complicated questions and, and they'll probably even get bumped ahead in line. In particular, if you're entertaining any doubts or your friends have raised questions, uh, I would like to do my best to answer them in a sober and scholarly way. Um, and uh, also, if you have any doubts about things I've been saying, uh, and I've been quoted as saying, uh, you shouldn't fear uh, asking me as long as it's civil. Oh, excuse me. Allow me just to disconnect the phone. As long as it's Norman, uh, just the audience, that, that you can ask the questions in any format you want. You don't have to just, you, you don't have to uh, do it via a super chat. We'll take questions both ways, the normal yeah. and the normal comments. But I mean, we probably, we see them easier if they're a super right. chat, but we will not discriminate against just normal comments. So, so, so you can pose the question whatever way you want. And Norman, let me ask you first, just to give us uh, an update, uh, your impressions, um, your your reflections on uh, on the war or the, the attack on Gaza as it stands right now. As we're speaking, we're just coming off what I believe is the most ferocious night of Israeli bombardment of Gaza to date. I made some statements the first few days of the uh, events after October 7th, and I think that they have held up. So I'll simply repeat what I said then, and I think that's where we stand now. The critical question seems to be uh, the actual attack on Gaza, each night being worse than the other. Uh, that's not news. I mean, that's how Israel conducts all of its operations, although this time, obviously, on a much higher scale, much greater intensity. Uh, but the, the idea of uh, this high-tech slaughter from the sky, uh, that's not something new. The question came up already the second day, already October 8th, if you recall, there were all the announcements about the ground invasion. And the ground invasion is imminent. And as you recall, Israel said, we're giving you four hours, we're giving you six hours. And each day we were told that the ground invasion was imminent. Well, if you go back and look at my comments, I expressed some skepticism on, the, uh, on that count on two grounds. And let me reiterate the skepticism because it's as valid today as it was uh, on October 8th and October 9th and thereafter. Number one, if you look at uh, the historical record, and here the, I think the historical record is very informative, it's very illuminating. In 2006, Israel went to war with Lebanon, the uh, Hezbollah, in Lebanon. 
The war lasted 34 days. Uh, the head of Hezbollah, uh, Sayyid Nasrallah, he called it the divine victory. Now, Israel uh, inflicted massive uh, death and destruction in Lebanon, and it uh, dropped, it was the densest dropping of of white of um, cluster bombs, the densest use of cluster bombs in any war in modern history. Not, notwithstanding, Israel kept announcing it was going to launch a ground invasion. It amassed, I think it was, but I could be mistaken. <clears throat> My memory tells me it amassed 30,000 troops on the Lebanese border, but it wasn't until the last 72 hours, not until the last 72 hours, that Israel actually invaded Lebanon, and it was just the photo op. Namely, the troops ran to the Latani River and got some pictures and then left. What happened the last 72 hours is uh, Israel was so fearful of the ground invasion that it asked Condoleezza Rice to sponsor a resolution at the UN calling for a ceasefire because they needed a face-saving way out of the mess they had gotten themselves into. And the mess is very simple. Israel did not want to fight hand-to-hand -hand combat, ground troops, the party of God. I've met people in the Hezbollah. I'm not claiming to any special knowledge, but there is a degree of what you can call a degree of the pejorative would be fanaticism, but it's a fanaticism of the sort that we know from American history. It's a fanaticism that says, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, but that fanaticism is combined with a second kind of fanaticism. It's the fanaticism of revenge. Revenge for what Israel did during its occupation of Lebanon uh, from um, 1983 to 2000. Revenge for the Qiyam prison <coughs> in South Lebanon. So Israel did not want to launch that ground invasion in Lebanon and to look for that face-saving uh, way out with Condoleezza Rice. In 2014, um, Israel was poised on the Gaza border. The troops were amassed again, the Israeli troops. Now the Gaza war in 2014, it started July 8th and it ended uh, August 26th. It was 51 days. And again, Israel did not want that ground invasion because it feared the uh, Hamas, not Hezbollah now, but the Hamas militants. And in fact, finally, Israel was forced to launch that ground invasion because they couldn't stop the projectile attacks from Hamas. And Israel had made the projectile attacks, attacks a red line, even though they were doing no harm in actuality, there was a symbolic aspect to them. And finally, Israel was forced to invade um, Gaza and it turned into, for Israel, it turned into a disaster. It was 62 Israeli combatants were killed, which for Israel is a very high number as compared to previous operations. So now we were faced again this time 
we're faced again with the prospect of that ground invasion. And Israel's holding off, holding off, holding off, keeps announcing, keeps announcing. There are three reasons, in my opinion, there are three reasons why it's holding off on that ground invasion now. Number one, they know that Hamas is dug in very deeply, even in the northern sector of Gaza. And they don't know what tricks um, the, uh, Gaza, the Hamas militants have contrived. Now, they went in yesterday. This was reported in the Times. They went in yesterday, some Israeli troops doing kind of a reconnaissance, and they were killed. There were several, one or several Israelis were killed. So that tells you they're still, for all the bombing in the north, they still have a problem. So that's one issue. The second issue is the Hezbollah. In my opinion, pure speculation. Pure speculation. Hezbollah cannot sit out the war. If it sits out the war and Israel commits, um, you know, an ethnic, clean, uh, an ethnic cleansing or something on that order, then the Hezbollah will lose all credibility. It will be said that they were complete blowhards, that they said they would stand by the Palestinian people and repeat or uh, uh, replay all of Nasrallah's speeches. And then in the moment of truth, it will be said they did as much as the United Arab Emirates, as much as Bahrain, as much as Saudi Arabia. So if they sit out the war, they're completely discredited. They have to do something. My impression is, and as I said, it's pure speculation. So don't, you know, don't quote me later as saying, you know, you know, you were wrong. My speculation is they drew a red line at an Israeli ground invasion. They communicate to the United States um, that if Israel invades Gaza, we are entering the war. So that's a second deterrence, because if Israel can't fight a war in Gaza, a ground war I'm talking about now, and judging from 2006, they don't want a war with Hezbollah. Because they, you know, Netanyahu went to the northern front the other day and he said, if you, uh, uh, if you attack us, we are going to hit you with something like you have never seen before. Well, the problem with that statement is, again, I can't judge the accuracy of these figures. But figures of and a, between 100 and 150,000 missiles and rockets in the Hezbollah arsenal are being thrown around or have been thrown around. So Netanyahu must recognize that if he hits them with everything he's got, this time it's going to come in the opposite direction. So that's the second reason for holding off on the ground invasion. I believe, but again, I stress, I have no secret sources uh, that they have drawn a red line at a ground invasion. And that leads us to the third consideration, which is the Biden administration. The Biden administration is currently saying that it doesn't want to, it's formally, that it doesn't want a ground invasion, one, because it wants to see if it can free more American hostages being held 
uh, somewhere in Gaza or elsewhere at this point. Uh, and secondly, they said they're fearful of the regional ramifications, which means Hezbollah, Hezbollah getting involved, then Iran getting involved. So when you add up those three factors, I think that explains why this ground invasion uh, um, hasn't happened. And even the Times wrote today, there was one little sentence. It said, when, and then it added, and if there is a ground invasion. Uh, because there's been a lot of speculation now. The speculation is that it's being said that Netanyahu doesn't want a ground invasion. But that also might be a ruse. Uh, as Moeen Rabani has pointed out, the army might be saying that, that Netanyahu doesn't want the invasion, so they can es escape responsibility for the absence of a ground invasion, namely blaming it on uh, the Israeli prime minister. So um, for all those reasons, I think it's unclear whether that ground invasion is going to happen or Israel is going to continue to pound uh, Gaza into oblivion to pulverize it and continue in its uh, attacks, uh, its massacre of the civilian population. So that's where I think uh, matters stand now. It's possible that they will do what they did in 20, 2006, where Israel realizes they can't do any more death and destruction, um, then they may call on the US to sponsor the ceasefire resolution, which as I mentioned earlier, they did with right. Condoleezza Rice. Um, the other possibility, uh, uh, because I've been asked, where do I think things are going? I said, number one, uh, I think that, <clears throat> Uh, Hezbollah has drawn the red line at the ground invasion. And number two, if Israel commits another atrocity on the scale of the hospital, and I'm happy to take questions on that if you want to ask me, then I don't think the Biden administration will lie for them a second time. And then that's going to be how Operation Protective Edge in 2014 ended. These are all arcane details, which unless you've studied the matter closely, you won't remember. What happened in 20 in Operation Protective Edge, just let me repeat for your listeners, which ran from July 26th, to, excuse me, July 8th to August 26th. What happened was in the early, I think it was August 8th, but I could be mistaken. On August 8th, uh, Israel, attacked a UN facility filled with refugees. And at that point, it created a huge uproar because Ban Ki-moon, uh, the then US lackey, had to do something because it was a UN facility. And he denounced it, then Obama denounced it. And at that point, the war was effectively over. Now it's true, there was time between August 8th and August 26th uh, for or because Israel was trying to extract the maximum it could from the from the, with, the ceasefire and withdrawal. Uh, so my guess is, if Israel commits a second atrocity on the magnitude of the hospital atrocity, then Biden is going to have to fold, and he says, "I'm not going to lie for you this time." Okay, got it, Norman. Uh, 
let's go to a question. This is from Elliot. Why did Hamas carry out this attack at this stage and so violently? What was the strategic reason behind it? What outcome were they expecting? Well, that's obviously a question that many people have asked. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if I believe it, but the reports now from Israel are, I I know your listeners are going to find this very hard to digest, and it's hard for me to digest. They're saying that according to Israeli intelligence, Hezbollah and Iran, according to Israeli intelligence, Hezbollah and Iran were not told in advance that Hamas was going to carry out this attack. So the question obviously becomes, why did they do this at this moment and not even give advance notice to Hezbollah and Iran, if that's true? That's what Israeli intelligence is currently saying. Why did they do that? Um, My guess is, again, speculation. I'm good at facts. I can do some speculation when when bears in the historical record. Obviously, this has no connection with any historical record. It's totally unprecedented. From what I've read, my guess is that they were fearful of a leak, that they had made all these plans. Now, you know, one of the leaders of Hamas, whether he can be trusted or not is unknown because he can't trust the word Hamas says. But if he can be trusted on this point, He said, we've been planning this for two years. And it took everybody by surprise, not least, as we all know, Israeli intelligence. And they may have been fearful and they may have had reports because as you recall, in the last few weeks, there have been some leaks that Egypt had warned Israel that something was happening, something was going to happen. And there were other leaks like that So it's possible Hamas launched the operation now at this moment because it was fearful of leaks, that somebody had penetrated uh, their planned operation. As to what they sought to achieve, I think that's very hard uh, to judge. My guess, if I were to guess, since it doesn't seem to have been linked to any bigger regional plan, and it may have been uh, executed for reasons which I've already described. I think it's a possibility. Now, you're going to forgive me for this. Uh, The last few days, I do Israel and Palestine, or Israel and Gaza by day. And at night, I'm trying, you know, just assimilating all the information. But at night, I'm trying to read on ancillary aspects. So the past couple of nights, I read a biography of Nat Turner, uh, the only good night biography of Nat Turner at this point by a fellow named Stephen Oates. And it's old, it's from 1973. And when you look at the Nat Turner Rebellion, There's no clear idea in his mind quite what he wanted to accomplish. At some points, he thought that the rebellion would resonate with the other black slaves and they would all rise up uh, in, uh, in an insurrection, which didn't happen. 
At other points, it said, and I've not read the most least recent scholarship on the topic. At other points, it said that um, he wanted to create this uh, crisis, this national crisis, by carrying out this mass killing and insurrection uh, in the hope that it would force people to reckon with what happened in what was happening to the slaves, uh, you know, to force the issue of slavery on the national agenda. Remember, uh, Nat Turner, is, their insurrection was in 1831. And the issue of slavery was not yet a major issue in the United States as a political issue. Uh, there was actually more contestation between the North and South over the tariffs that were being implemented than there was over slavery. The abolitionists, you know, William Lloyd Garrison only got started around that time. And there were only a few thousand of them. There were only a few thousand abolitionists at the time. So it's possible that Hamas just wanted to create a national crisis, in, in their case, a global crisis, uh, to force a reckoning with the issue of the Gaza concentration camp. So I think that's a possibility, uh, but otherwise I can't add. I, I, have, I don't have more to say. By the way, I just put in a link to um, the uh, chat that I did with Norman where we talked about this specifically. Uh, I'll add it to the description, but where we talked about the Nat Turner um, uprising uh, specifically. So uh, in particular, okay. So another question for you, um, uh, Norman. Uh, actually, let's take a question related to to what you were just talking about. Johnny Waffleman says, just to help me clarify my own position, is the comparison between the October seventh attack and Nat Turner's slave result is a bad comparison? I think he's saying, is it a bad comparison if one takes into account that the people of Gaza aren't technically enslaved? Well, as uh, anybody understands, and I'm not saying this in a patronizing way, I'm just repeating a commonplace. Uh, analogies are never perfect. If they were perfect, they, weren't be they wouldn't be analogies. Uh, so you have to look at analogy and judge for yourself whether there are salient aspects of two different situations such that they render them comparable in some significant way. If, for example, the only commonality you can find between the people of Gaza and slaves in the United States is both of them are human beings, if that's the only common denominator, it's not a terrific analogy. So if we were to make the analogy with uh, the slaves, there are obviously some aspects which are not common to the two because after all, the slaves did fulfill an economic function in, this, uh, in the political economy of the American South. Uh, the people of Gaza were just left there to languish and die. They lived 90% of their economy was based on international aid uh, of one sort or another. There was no functional economy inside Gaza. It's an amusing fact, with all due respect, to the many, the literally hundreds, maybe thousands of statisticians who 
have gone through the economy of Gaza, first and foremost among them being Sarah Roy of Harvard University, whose book on the Gaza economy is the standard work on the subject. I once wrote, if you take all the, the voluminous uh, reports that have come out about the Gaza economy, the huge human investment of uh, you know, intellect and uh, economic uh, analysis, if instead of doing that, you took all the money invested in that and just built a pool in Gaza, it would probably serve a better function because there is no economy in Gaza. Gaza has been under a blockade since 2006, and it's been completely dependent to the tune, I think, of 90% on foreign handouts uh, to the people of Gaza. So uh, it's not slave labor in that sense. That analogy doesn't work. But if you look at it from the point of view of being with the Nat Turner rebellion, of being confined uh, to a situation that's degrading, humiliating, um, as uh, Du Bois said. You know, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great African-American historian, he was you know, just a really smart guy, but also totally undogmatic. He said, you know, in some ways, the slave system had built into it. Now, I'm quoting him because you'll be shocked to hear what he says. So I have to be careful. I'm not going to quote this saying. And he says, in some ways, they had built into it a primitive, what he called a primitive pension system, that when a slave, a slave was no longer able to work, the slave owner was under a kind of moral obligation to enable that person to live out his or her last years with, you know, to live it out in physical, uh, physically live it out. Uh, so um, uh, just allow me to uh, regain my thought. So um, the, the aspect of slavery that the boy said was so humiliating, what made it such an absolutely atrocious system, he said it was the moral aspect how it degraded and humiliated a human being. And in that respect, and also no hope, when we're getting back to the Nat Turner Rebellion. I was reading, I'll just, uh, one of the things, let's see if I can find it since I have it here. So um, Nat Turner was a very smart guy. There was no, there was a broad consensus on that among whites and among blacks. He was literate. He was actually well-read, and everybody deferred to the fact of his intelligence. He was, a, he was like Frederick Douglass. I mean, when you read about him, there are very strong resemblances to Frederick Douglass. In any event, uh, the biographer refers, uh, let me just read a sentence to you. Yes, rage burned in him, fed by the prodigious chasm between what he was, a very smart guy, as the biographer keeps reiterating, and what he aspired to be in this, the only life he had. 
And the reality, the reality was a very smart guy, the aspirations he had, and the fact that he was reduced to a slave now and into his eternity. And the rage that consumed him because of that chasm that separated who he was, who he aspired to be, and the reality of the situation he had, like the young men in Gaza, the reality he had been born into. Matt Turner was born into slavery and would for the for the whole of his life be a slave. And those young men in Gaza who burst through its prison gates on October 7th, they were born into a Gaza concentration camp. And as things looked up until October 7th, they would die in it. And so they too, assuming they are human beings, which I do assume, unlike Israelis who assume they're human animals. Um, to they, quote the defense minister. They too must have been consumed by rage. Actually, Gideon Levy also. Gideon Levy also, he described them as less than animals. He described them as less than animals. Um, so uh, I can't, I can't see why the analogy is wrong. Now, somebody would want to maybe argue with me, and I'm happy to. I mean, I'm still processing it. I'm trying to figure it out. I, I would only want to remind people of a couple of facts. <clears throat> since you brought up the, since your uh, uh, question, or brought up the question. The Nat Turner Rebellion was horrific. I mean, they beheaded a lot of babies. They beheaded a lot of babies. They disemboweled quite a lot of people. They took their axes and smashed the skulls of many people. The one person who held back was actually Nat Turner himself. He apparently only killed one person. And why exactly he held back, obviously it's a subject of a lot of conjecture. But it was absolutely brutal. Now, I mentioned that fact to say at that level, it's quite comparable to what happened on October 7th. But then I would like to, with your permission, and of course it's your program, I would uh, like to read just two brief passages, uh, very short, from the book I was reading last night. Um, and you'll decide for yourself whether it resonates to the current situation. The author writes, white people have to believe that the Nat Turner insurrection 
sprang from religious fanaticism, which had bewildered and deranged Nat Turner's mind and had led him and his quote unquote band of savages to commit atrocities beyond the capacity of ordinary slaves. That's what white people have to believe. And then the author adds, whites could not blame the rebellion on their, on their own slave system. They were too much a part of it to do that. They couldn't acknowledge it was their own slave system that created the Nat Turner Rebellion. So they had to blame it on the, uh, let's see. Pathology? From the, from the religious fanaticism, <laughs> from the religious fanaticism of Nat Turner. That to me, when I saw that, I immediately underlined it. That sounds like today. Now, I would like to just read one other thing. Norman, yeah. Norman, I have a follow-up question for you because the yeah. part of your comparison that I don't that doesn't register for me, and I'm sorry if you've already addressed it and I missed it, but mm -hmm. um, Hamas, unlike slaves, had some power. They had some authority. They they were the rulers of they are the rulers of Gaza. They had that's ridiculous. Hold on a second. They're backed by a foreign patron. Uh, they have money coming in. Um, and it strikes me they have more freedom of choice than slaves did. Um, I understand there's a long history that I'm very familiar of Hamas trying to moderate its position, um, you know, accepting a two-state solution tacitly, still being rejected by, by Israel and the U.S. So I understand that they're, they were put um, in, in, a, in a really difficult position that even when they try to engage with diplomacy they try to engage in a palestine uh, unity government all that gets shunned i know all that but still unlike slaves they do have some authority they do rule over the strip um, Look, Aaron, i don't I, I get you know i understand you have to play the devil's advocate i understand that, that because that's how truth comes out when you know you play the devil, devil's advocate role and i have to answer that and I have to respect that role uh, that you're playing. But it's, it's just very hard for me, and I hope you'll forgive me. It's very hard for me to hear things like that, that Hamas had agency. What kind of agency did it have? 2.2 million people were immured, caged into a concentration camp for two decades. Half of those people are children. The water, 97% of the water is poisonous in Gaza. One half of the population is classified as suffering from severe food insecurity. That's the population. We're talking about Hamas. Yeah, but and, 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 and for example, and I can tell you. Hold on, no, 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 just answer that. One point. Just one point. Just one point. Of all my friends in Gaza, not mm -hmm. a single one supports Hamas. Um, 
And, and so I don't, I don't support Hamas. Okay, so accordingly, I don't then uh, associate Hamas with the with the civilians of Gaza. I think that's look. That's a good point. I'm going to now, since you brought up that point, I want to just read, if you allow me, on that very point about the relationship between Hamas and the people. Okay. Number one, before I get to what I want to read. You speak about Hamas like it's this organization totally apart from the people, okay? I'm not going to talk about how representative it was. I'm not going to do that because, frankly, I don't even have the information to make a, a uh, informed judgment. Secondly, I don't think the P Hamas was ever given a chance. It's like telling me in 1990, the Sandinistas were defeated in the election. Yes, they were defeated in the election. They started out as a popular group, because I remember the Sandinista re uh, revolution. Yeah. And by 1990, the United States did what it did in Chile, yeah. or the Israelis did what the US did in Chile. They made the economy scream, yeah. and then the people voted out uh, the Sandinistas in the election. So that could, certainly be explained. I remember when I was in Gaza, uh, I don't remember what year now, but I remember a few people saying to me, now is not the time to elect Hamas. Now is not the time to elect it because immediately as it was elected, the, the, um, the uh, uh, sanctions, the blockade was created. So it's you know perfectly plausible that the people were completely alienated from Hamas and that was what all reports seem to say, you know, uh, Ken Roth wrote in the Guardian that Hamas is uh, that guy, that uh, Gaza was under military dictatorship for the last 15 years. Well, actually, Ken, that's not exactly right. What happened was there was an election. It was a completely honest and fair election, as attested to by Jimmy Carter, and then the blockade was instituted. And the purpose of the blockade was to turn the people against Gaza, excuse me, against Hamas. And that's what happened. He leaves that part out, that they were never given a chance. Exactly what happened to Morsi in Egypt, never given a chance. But let's leave that aside. Two points. Number one, you talk about the Hamas as being completely separated from the people. But... I'm talking about those 1,500 young men who were killed after they burst the gates of Gaza. Are they just blind followers of Hamas orders? Or were they like the Nat Turner Rebellion? People, young men, like yourself, actually much younger than you now, young men who were born into a concentration camp, who just like Nat Turner, the rage inside them because of the chasm between who they were, who they aspired to be, and the reality that till their last breath, they would be confined to a concentration camp. So instead of talking about Hamas in the abstract and their agency, Let's talk about the people, the 1,500 young men who nobody gives a darn about. Everybody talks about 
1,400 Israelis who were killed. And yes, it was an atrocity. I said that on the first day. But what about those 1,500 young men who were born into a concentration camp? And on top of being born into a concentration camp, periodically, periodically, that diabolical regime would announce with no shame and the entire world would receive with no shame that diabolical, and I'll say it, that satanic regime would announce, we're going to mow the lawn in Gaza. Do you know how pathological, how totally sick it is to talk about mowing the lawn on a population confined in a concentration camp and half of whom are children. And nobody even recoils. We all laugh, a little titter of laugh at Israel's use of the expression mowing the lawn in Gaza. Isn't that cute? Isn't that funny to mow the lawn? And how many of those 1,500 people lost a grandmother, lost a grandfather, lost a sister, lost a brother, lost a nephew, lost a niece, lost their home, their home? How would you feel if your apartment was flattened? Would you need the Hamas leadership to inspire you in a rage? Or would the rage be there already? Now, you ask me, what do the people of Hamas have to, what, what do the people of Gaza feel about what Hamas did? And don't blame Hamas, and they have agency, and with, your, with all due respect, and all the blah, blah, blah. And I was very struck by the very last sentence, the very last paragraph of the Nat Turner Rebellion. Now, let's be clear. Nat Turner, at the maximum, he was only able to get 80 black slaves to support him. And there were various reasons why he couldn't marshal more support for the rebellion. But here's the thing. I said it was horrible. I have to tell you, I was reading the pages and the descriptions, and I think, uh-oh, Matt is bonkers, okay? Going into rooms and just chopping off the heads of babies. And it's ghastly. There's a whole chapter of just the descriptions. But let me say, yeah. Norman, you know. Allow me to say. Just a second. Just a second. Yeah. In the case of of what happened inside Israel, though, mm -hmm. I still think it's actually unclear what even happened. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, so I'm I, not even, I, you know, I, I don't even want to accept at face value all these claims. I, I told you, I'm yeah. taking the worst case scenario. Yeah, I'm because in fact, one Israeli hostage even told Israeli state yes. radio that yes. Israeli forces killed hostages in the right. crossfire. So. I don't know. I I was just, you know, uh, with my friends Muin Rabani and. Uh, Jamie Sternweiner, we were going through the evidence on that. I have to tell you, it is important, the detail. It is important, the detail. 
And for those of you who remember, which nobody remembers because you're all too young, uh, the 1972 Munich massacre at the Olympics, uh, it, all the deaths were caused by the West Germans when they attacked the uh, building oh, wow. where, where the uh, hostages were taken. Um, but let's take the worst case scenario. So that would be the Nat Turner scenario, the beheadings and everything. It was very striking to me. I like, if you'll allow me uh, to just read the last paragraph of the book, the very last paragraph. Spoiler alert. Yes. No, it's not a spoiler alert. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Sorry. But for antebellum blacks, meaning before the Civil War, but for antebellum blacks and for their descendants, the name of Nat Turner took on a profoundly different connotation. For whites, he was a devil, a monster, you know? He became a legendary black hero, especially in southeastern Virginia, where blacks enshrined his name in an oral tradition that still flourishes today. Today meaning 1973. They regard Nat's rebellion as the quote, first war against slavery and the civil war as the second. So in death, Nat achieved a kind of victory denied him in life. He became a martyred soldier of slave liberation who broke his chains and murdered whites because slavery had murdered Negroes. Nat Turner said an elderly black man in Southampton County, that's where the rebellion occurred, only a few years ago, Nat Turner was, quote, God's man. He was a man for war and for legal rights and for freedom. And it struck me, you said none of your friends in Gaza support Hamas. I wonder how many opposed what happened when the prison gates of Gaza were burst open and how many of them reacted just like black people in the South reacted to Nat Turner, even though it was well known that the order Nat Turner gave out was quote, kill all the whites, which is what they proceeded to do. Um, and again, Norman, but back to my original point, mm -hmm. uh, was simply this. Wh which uh, book are you quoting from, Norman? People want to know. Sorry. And it's then called The Fires of Jubilee. Okay. The Fires of Jubilee. My original point was, um, of course, I'm not denying Hamas the right to resist. They have every right to resist. Um, but in terms of the analogy between them and slaves, I do think the Hamas leadership, and I'm not talking about the fighters who who were in part of this operation, the Hamas leadership, have more agency than slaves. We can, we can argue about that. 
Okay. Uh, well, let's go to some more questions. I just want to add one other thing. Yeah. I'm not making any extenuations. Mm -hmm. I'm not making any extenuations. I was happy. I was not happy with what Gideon Levy had to say. However, I was very satisfied with what Amira Haas had to say when she was apparently on Democracy Now. I didn't see the episode, I don't watch that program, but I was given a transcript. And I'll quote to her, I'll quote to your audience what she said. And I still want to say, and again, I want to say that the more I hear about this Saturday, and I think that many details are, I mean, I verified many details, and the atrocities were there. But it taught me that people came, not all, not the majority, a few. But it only tells me how the pressure that has built up, how monstrous the pressure was to create those monstrous attacks in one day. Amira, if you hear me, which probably won't, thank you for that. That's right. How monstrous the pressure must have been. And this is someone who described it as an orgy of violence. Yes, orgies of vengeance. vengeance. At least that's what I have here, orgies of vengeance. Which it was. When I read the chapter in the biography where it described what they did, there's a long chapter I told you, Nat Turner and his, and his uh, um, supporters. It was an orgy of vengeance. It was an orgy of vengeance, which I think was true. It was born of that chasm between who they were who they aspire to be, and this hapless fate of being born into slavery or born into a concentration camp. If that sounds like, you know, the French expression, uh, to understand is to excuse. If that sounds like excusing, well, guess what? Excuse me, but I think it's the truth. Understood. I've, I've been to Gaza, very nice, you know, in general, very nice people, uh, very kind to me, and never ever wore their suffering on their shoulder. Yeah. They would never talk about how hard life is. They would never complain. Very practical. If you can do this, if you can do that, um, including the young men. Now, uh, I would just, I was going to say, I'll enter one caveat uh, to, um, to uh, Aaron's question about agency. I said, you know, people can disagree. I have no problem with disagreeing. Uh, we don't know what Hamas ordered. And we don't know how much of it was young people in the midst of this mayhem exacting their revenge. I don't know. Right. Okay. I, I, I suspect we'll never know. 
Uh, here's a question from Angela. Can Norman please expand on why the U.S. is so locked in with Israel and is willing to support this appalling attack? We would never stand by and support this in most other places in the world. Well, we do support it. We support it with the Saudis and the, and the uh, Yemen, the Yemenis. So we support it there. I've never met no, any instances where we not just support it, we inflicted it. Um, why? I think that's, uh, I think in the case of Biden and Blinken, uh, there are concerns about uh, Israel's deterrence capacity being undermined. Deterrence capacity is just a fancy technical term for the Arabs' fear of Israel. And the fact that even Hamas, this rinky-dink, rinky-dink organization in little Gaza could carry out, execute this attack and totally, totally bewilder Israeli intelligence. That's going to undermine Israel's deterrence capacity, as in if Saudi Arabia is going to make an alliance, it wants an alliance so that Israel can pull its chestnuts out of the fire and begin to a war with Iran. Then you begin to wonder just how effective a fighting force or military force Israel is. So part of uh, allowing it to continue on its murderous rampage is just born of uh, the need to restore Israel's deterrence capacity. And the Israelis have said it that they need this now to restore their deterrence capacity. Uh, and then there are all sorts of other factors. And one factor I would guess, one factor is going to be electoral. Biden has now locked in the Jewish vote and he's locked in Jewish money and that's not trivial. And you see it in other places, you know, right now, there was an article yesterday, I don't know if you guys saw it, there was an article yesterday in the Financial Times about how the Jewish billionaire class is pulling all its money from major universities because they're not taking a stand on what Hamas did in October 7th. And we're talking about huge amounts of money. And universities, you know, if you can pull it up on the screen, uh, universities are are in a very, the big universities, are now in a very uh, precarious position because of what's happening. We're talking about 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollars at a shot. So in the same way that this, I'm pretty certain, is going to be a Biden electoral concern, plus he gets to look presidential, you know, going over to Israel. So I think part of it is a photo op, part of it is presidential, and part of it is, it's not really different. Uh, if you look at what Obama did, uh, Barack Obama did during Operation Protective Edge, where he kept saying day in and day out, Israel has the right to protect itself. Uh, and then during Operation Cast Lead, that was um, December, 20, yeah, December uh, 26 to January 17th, uh, Operation Cast Lead, uh, Barack Obama wouldn't say, he had already been elected president, and he wouldn't say anything. And the only time he said something, you know when he said something? 
Well, you can guess. It's January 17th, 2009. Why did he say something? His inauguration was coming up January 20th, and he thought the war in Gaza or the massacre in Gaza would be a distraction. So he told the Israelis to call it off, and that's what they did on January 17th. Uh, in deference to Barack Obama's demand, they called it off. So there's nothing really distinctive about what the Biden Blinken administration is doing, except for the fact that uh, I, we're coming up to a presidential election. And judging by the retaliation that the Jewish billionaire class is now inflicting on the major US universities, uh, you know, to the point that the Harvard president had to change her statement. U of P president had to issue a statement, all of it, because it was very straightforward. It was very public. We're pulling our money if you don't make a statement. So I think the same effect operates at the level of the presidential election, that that was a, uh, an ultimatum that if Biden wanted that money and he wanted the vote, well, he's more concerned about the money, I think, then he's going to have to stand behind Israel 100%. Mm. Um, we have an, some more questions. Um, let's see. Why Israel asked people to move south to avoid the bombing in north and then bombs the south of Gaza? And is there a plan to resettle Palestinians from Gaza to Sinai? And of course, Israel defenders are saying they didn't bomb them. Just to put that in. Well, Israel has been uninterruptedly bombing the South. So it's very hard not to bomb them if you're bombing indiscriminately the whole South. Um, there was, a, yesterday, there was a news story that uh, uh, the head of state in Egypt, Nisi, had uh, agreed to set up a tent city in Sinai and that uh, Saudis would finance it. I find these, these, these are just speculations, which are, I don't think it makes sense to squander time on them because we have no idea where this is going. Israel is talking about a months-long uh, operation in Gaza. I don't think they can do months. I don't see how they can sustain months. Uh, the Israeli society is used to a very good life, as, as the international polls show. And they're the, the fifth happiest country on Earth. Uh, they are not going to be able to tolerate such a magnitude of mobilization for months at a time. So I don't know where things are headed in terms of what they're going to do with the population. Is there any clarity about how much IDF may be responsible for the deaths of settlers as they fired at the Palestinian fighters? And can you talk about the Hannibal Doctrine that would allow that? I think there's a certain misunderstanding about the Hannibal Doctrine was first implemented during Operation Protective Edge. And the essence of the Hannibal Doctrine is very simple. 
if the Hamas fighters capture an Israeli soldier, then it's okay to kill the soldier in order to prevent Hamas from keeping the soldier and using the soldier as a bargaining chip in a prisoner exchange. Because you will remember in the case of, I think it was Sergeant Shalit, they ended up having to engage in a prisoner exchange, which was one Mr. Shalit for, I think it was 1,200, something like that, don't hold me on the figure, something like 1,200 Palestinian figures, uh, Palestinian uh, prisoners. prisoners in Israel. And they decided they're not going to go through that again. So they enunciated the, ha the Hannibal Doctrine uh, so as to avoid a future massive prisoner exchange. Um, but that doctrine was to kill the Israeli soldier together with the Hamas fighters before they had in practice become hostages. But right now the Israeli civilians are already hostages. So that would require a slightly different doctrine, which is to say to kill them even as they are already being held somewhere in Gaza, which was different. Once um, Shalit was captured, Israel wasn't bombing Gaza. If you get, it's a slight distinction, it's a slight distinction. I look at Aaron, who I count as a young friend and comrade, and I'm afraid I exasperate him with some of my comments. So I, I want, you know, I said at the no, beginning. Not at all, not at all. I say at the beginning, I want to entertain objections, and I have to, I have to stand by that. Of course, yeah. I have to stand yeah. by that, yeah. and I just get, you know, when I hear about Hamas having agency, it's like saying the Jewish councils, what were called the Judenrat, the Jewish councils, that they had agency in the various ghettos that were established by the Nazis in Eastern Europe. I agree, actually, if you will uh, forgive me, let's see if I can find it. It's actually the very first page, and I never promote myself, I'm against that because it's out of respect for the dead and the suffering in the dead. I never promote myself or promote my books or anything like that. I find it unseemly when people are dying to do that. I find it disgusting, frankly. And it comes to the very question you asked. So if you'll forgive me, this book, the book on Gaza, is not about Gaza. It is about what has been done to Gaza. It is fashionable nowadays to speak of a victim's agency. But one must be realistic about the constraints imposed on such agency by objective circumstance. Frederick Douglass could reclaim his manhood by striking back at a slave master who viciously abused him. Nelson Mandela 
could retain his dignity in jail despite conditions calibrated to humiliate and degrade him. Still, these were exceptional individuals, Douglas and Mandela, and exceptional circumstances. And anyhow, even if he acquits himself with honor, the elemental decisions affecting the daily life of a man held in bondage and to the power to affect these decisions remain outside his control. I got that. And again, you know, I think we've debated this issue enough, but personally, I distinguish between the Hamas leadership and the civilian population of Gaza. I do too. When it comes to analogies to slaves and to the Warsaw Ghetto, to the, I, I accept that analogy when it comes to civilians. The leadership, in, you know, and even in, in the case of leadership of Hamas, I know there's been different factions. There's been a sharp slip. There's an armed wing and there's the political wing. And within that, there's all sorts of different factions and different uh, visions for strategy. So I don't even speak of them as a monolith. But anyway, I, going not, back. I, I've said many times, I'm not defending them, uh, and I don't believe the core issue is about them. I, don't I agree with that, for sure. I, yeah. I don't think it's about them, so I'm not going to become distracted. For me, those 1,500 people who, so, uh, 1,500 Hamas militants who were killed, I don't think of them as Hamas, like people who are, yeah. Ideologically driven. Yeah, who knows? Or yeah, I don't know. But yeah. I think most of them are just ordinary young men in Gaza. You know, and when you live in a simple society like that, if you have no work, 60% of young people in Gaza are unemployed. If you have no work, you get up each morning. For me, forgive me, I'm not religious, but forgive me if there is a deity. When I lost my job in 2007, and I never was able to work again, um, it was not easy getting up in the morning because you had to sort of create some purpose to getting up. Mm. There was no longer any structure you know Aaron and you know Katie. I have to do this at this time. I have to do this at that time. I have this program. I have this program. I got up. I didn't know what to do. I had to sort of, it was each morning I had to fabricate a new a life for myself. And now these young men, since the day they were born, all they could do was Pace the perimeter of Gaza, 25 miles by five miles. They could never get married. It's impossible in a simple society to get married if you don't have a job. Yeah. You know, they had nothing. And if you allow me. And, And Norman, while you're getting that passage, let me also acknowledge, too, that when they tried to act nonviolently in the Great March of Return that began in March 2018. They got gunned down um, by they Israel. Got, they were targeted. Yeah. 
you know, you read these reports, that's why when anybody criticizes the statements I made in the first few days or the statements I made today, and I get a lot of mail very critical of me, I said, look, I'll send you a PDF of my book. I don't want any money. I'm going to send you a PDF of my book. Your poor publisher. Don't say that because I could. Let's just cut that. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, you read my book, and then let's see if you come to a different conclusion than me. People don't know the details. They don't know the facts. They have no clue. I did a program the other day with Jimmy Dore. The Jimmy Dore, no, he wasn't there, but somebody else. Pasta. And I mentioned that nobody can go in and nobody can go out, except for you know, the rarest exception. And one of the host he said really i didn't know that you can't go out and and that's why if you allow me just give me one half moment yeah. well, as you find that page yeah. i'm gonna log off because i have to run so i'm gonna say goodbye but katie's, katie's gonna continue with you for a little bit longer so if i can while you're here uh, I know okay, sure. yes. Yes. Just let me read this passage. Okay. It was written um, by the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. This was after Operation Castlet, excuse me, Operation Protective Edge. When a place becomes unlivable, people move. This is the case for environmental disasters, such as droughts or for conflicts such as Syria. Yet this last resort to move is denied to the people in Gaza. They cannot move beyond their 365 square kilometers territory. They cannot escape. Neither the devastating poverty nor the fear of another conflict. It's highly educated youth do not have the option to travel, to seek education outside Gaza, or to find work anywhere else beyond the perimeter fence and the two tightly controlled border checkpoints in the north and the south of the Gaza Strip. With the Rafa crossing between Egypt and Gaza almost entirely closed, except for a few days per year. And with Israel often denying exit, even for severe humanitarian cases or staff of international organizations, the vast majority of the people have no chance of getting one of the highly sought after permits. They can also not leave across the sea without the risk of being arrested or shot at by the Israeli or Egyptian navies. And they cannot climb over the heavily guarded perimeter fence between Israel and Gaza without the same risks. That was their life. Mm -hmm. So that you would be shocked by what happened on October 7th, 
No. A moment's reflection, if you've done the, so to speak, background reading, it doesn't come as a shock. Whether Israel might have exaggerated it, maybe. Whether things happened which, uh, whether things happened which we haven't been told, maybe. But I'm willing to accept exactly as Amira Ha said. She said, uh, I verified many details. And she says the atrocities were there. I am willing to accept that. Uh, but I don't accept the verdict. Just like the black people did not accept the verdict on Nat Turner. Okay, I'm going to log off. Norman, great to see you and thank you for doing this. And Katie is going to continue with you for a little bit while longer. So uh, talk soon. Okay, um, let's see. Um, one second. Um, okay, I listened to the Gideon Levy interview on bad faith. Would Norman let us know what he disagreed with there? It would help my clarity of thought. Gideon Levy was on bad faith? I think that's a mistake. I think it might I think you mean Nico Pellet. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't so we're not going to do that because I don't think. Um, okay. Um, let's see. I'm afraid that good, bad, or indifferent, the train has left the station for Israel. BB and Biden have set their fate. Israel's big brother, the U.S., is weak and can only shill for a dead horse. So do you agree with that? No. <laughs> It can inflict masses, masses, mass amounts more of death and destruction in Gaza, and they will. Okay. Um, what role did England play in the colonial tactic of divide and conquer in the formation of Israel? And will the Saudis shut off the oil to the West? Uh, the answer to the last question is, of course not. And the answer to the first question is, now is not the time. Okay. Um, one second. Let's see. Um, seems like the U.S. started this trouble in Israel in an effort to derail BRICS. But ironically, BRICS may be the only chance of a peaceful solution. I don't think this has anything whatever to do with uh, BRICS. BRICS. Okay. Okay. Following this context, how is it that Palestinians are just portrayed as having refused acceptable solutions? I think Israel has a very effective propaganda apparatus, and they barrage you from every which direction because there are so many separate institutions and organizations disseminating Israeli propaganda and it falls on a naturally receptive audience, namely the organs of the Democratic Party and the various media organs of the Democratic Party, like MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, Atlantic Magazine, New Yorker Magazine, that it's a, it's a full-time business trying to combat it mostly by people who aren't paid for their labors, unlike if you work for one of these Democratic Party establishment uh, institutions or organizations. And as I said, 
the um, the barrage never stops. It's very hard. I I devote forty years of my life to it, and I must say, it to keep up it precludes pretty much doing anything else. It was so time-consuming trying to answer the voluminous, ceaseless, interminable lies. It was a full-time, 24-7, 365 occupation for 40 years. Um. Question, Turkey, Russia, China, these three have the power to save the Gazan 2.3 million lives. Why don't they open a naval humanitarian convoy to Gaza yesterday? Why are they not using their power? Because Gaza is not very high in their order of priorities. They're just 2.3. It's like asking, it's not an entirely fair comparison, but after World War II, there are a huge literature proliferate, really beginning in the 1970s. Why didn't anybody do anything for the Jews? And, um, you know, there's a, there was a certain element I would have, to, I would acknowledge, not only acknowledge, it's a fact, there was a certain element of indifference an element of anti-Semitism and an element of we're in the midst of a world war, this isn't a priority. In the case of the refugees who came to the United States before the war began, uh, it has to be remembered. I'm not making excuses here. I'm trying to give a factual description. We were still in the midst of a depression and there was a lot of hostility to laying foreigners in when we, there was massive unemployment in the United States. So there are all sorts of factors uh, which Russia is involved in the war in Ukraine. Turkey has all sorts of considerations and it was basically aligned with Israel the last few years. Uh, that's how states operate. A similar uh, question that I have, this reminds me of a question, is um, what your response is to the very frequently repeated talking point, why don't Arab countries uh, take them in? Why should Arab countries take them in? It's not their responsibility. Should they as a humanitarian gesture? Sure, but guess what? As a humanitarian gesture, why doesn't the United States cut its standard of living by like 20% and give all the money to Africa? I wonder how that would fly right. as a humanitarian gesture. I'm not saying it's right, but a lot of people fleeing or trying to enter the border with the United States are fleeing drug cartels in various parts of Mexico and Central America, very violent drug cartels. Uh, I don't see this big desire to open the border and let them in. 
Um, okay, what about, uh, do you have any updates that you want to share on the bombing of the hospital? And did you see the note that the New York Times published? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to end on this question. Uh, so you'll allow me to go through the facts. Sure. Okay. And the New York Times, just so people know, they basically pu published a mea culpa about having reported that Israel was behind the explosion. Right, because its reader base is the Upper East Side. Um, so let's go through the facts. And I'm going to omit some simply because my memory is not perfect. Okay. Number one, Israel always targets hospitals. You go back to the 1982 war in Lebanon. The war actually began when Israel bombed a Palestinian children's hospital and 60 of its occupants were killed. I posted on my website, excuse me, I posted on my website and my substack. Just for you to say, you know, I want to be clear, I don't know anything about social media. I have three young tech people and my old friend and comrade, Sana Kasim, who handle all those things. So. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know there's something called a substack. And you have your web on website, yeah. So I posted a long excerpt from Noam Chomsky's book, The Faithful Triangle, on Israel's promiscuous attacks on hospitals in Lebanon, which actually goes on for quite a few pages in his book. Israel always targets hospitals. During the Lebanon war, Israel, according, I'm here I'm quoting human rights organizations. Israel attacked ambulances in Lebanon. According to the human rights reports, there was no evidence that these ambulances were being used for military purposes. I posted on my website excerpts from my book on Gaza during Operation Cast Lead, Operation Protective Edge, other operations. Israel routinely attacks hospitals, ambulances, medical personnel. That's par for the course for Israel. During the most recent Israeli attack on Gaza, the New York Times quoted today, the World Health Organization, who? World Health Organization reports just in the current round, Israel has attacked 19 hospitals. Three of them Since were- October 7th? Yes. You can find it while I'm talking, just go to New York Times, uh, world, enter WHO, and you'll see it. 19 hospitals, just go to the search for today. 19 hospitals since the attack, since October 7th, uh, three of which are now effectively disabled, three hospitals. So that's fact number one. Fact number two. Israel was indiscriminately bombing all around that particular hospital where the 500 people perished, 471 is the current figure. 
Okay? Number three, according to Le Monde, on October 14th and October 15th, Israel attacked that hospital. And the second time it attacked on October 15th, it gave a stern warning to the hospital director that you better leave. Okay? So that's the context of what happened. Now, there are all sorts of disputes based on analysis of the satellite imagery and based on the scene of the attack as to what happened. And it's hard to resolve on the base of the evidence, except for one fact. Here's the one fact. According to Israel, since October 7th, Hamas has fired, when I say Hamas, I mean Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the various militant groups, but we'll just use it generically, Hamas. Hamas has fired 6,000 rockets at Israel. That's the figure they're giving, at least as of yesterday. And according to Israel, dozens have been killed. So 6,000 rockets, dozens have been killed. Okay? So any of your listeners can easily grasp that um, the rockets don't kill many people. Now, according to AP, one of their one of the investigations that have been done, AP says it was a fragment from a Hamas rocket that the rocket exploded in the air, a misfire, and it killed 500 people. That's interesting. 6,000 rockets have been fired and dozens were killed in Israel. But one Hamas rocket fragment killed 500. How did that happen? How did suddenly this diabolical satanic weapon, or I should say fragment of a weapon, cause so many deaths. Now, this particular mystery can be very easily resolved. Number one, Gaza's a tiny place. The United States had such heavy intelligence surveillance, satellite surveillance of Gaza. Why doesn't the United States just release the imagery why doesn't it just publish the imagery? It's very simple. Is there a secret? Well, there's no secret. We know the United States is surveilling Gaza with its satellites. Why don't they just publish the imagery? Or number two, another simple way to resolve this mystery is to allow international inspectors in. Now, the New York Times article today claimed that Hamas cleared the area and swept it and says there's no evidence. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I, I think Hamas lies all the time. I know that. I have no problem. I've never cited the Hamas source for anything I ever wrote. I wouldn't even cite the Hamas source for the birth date of any Hamas. I wouldn't. Okay? So, but it's pretty obvious that any weapons inspector would know the difference between a rocket fragment falling in the hospital parking lot and a high-tech weapon. It doesn't take, if I can use the expression here, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out the difference. So here is the question. Why did the United States veto any international arms inspectors from going in? When Mr. Miller was asked, the State Department spokesperson, would you support an international investigation? Let the weapons inspectors in. The United States said no. Why did it say no? Is it protecting Hamas? For shame, United States protecting Hamas. So there are two easy ways. Release the satellite imagery or let the arms inspectors in. Why has the United States done neither? Good question. Okay, Katie, as Thanks. always, it was a pleasure, and I'm, I'm glad we had the time uh, to discuss it. I'll make one last comment, and this is, if I can, a tiny tribute to you and Aaron. Um, I think it's fair to say that at a political level, at the level of politics, I'm the world's leading expert on Gaza. Uh, that's not a, you know, that's like saying the tallest building in Wichita, Kansas. There just aren't any others. You know, there was one book written by a Frenchman, very weak, very poor, feel you. And otherwise, there's, you know, Sarah Roy's standard work on the economy. But on the politics, uh, there's nothing really except for my book. Uh, so, Beginning October 7th, of course, people were looking for experts. Now, you would expect the mainstream is not going to have me on. That's a different. But it was interesting in the so-called left podcasts, with the exception of Jimmy Dore, Chris Hedges, and yourself, nobody would have me on. I did make queries. And as you know, I've made the rounds of the left podcast when my last book came out on the cancel culture. Nobody would have me on. Jimmy Dore, Chris Hedges, and yourself. But here's the thing that's very revealing about the state of this so-called left. There's a young woman named Michaela Peterson. She is... Hi, Jordan Peterson's daughter. Daughter. And... She had me on. You had me on for like an hour and a half, something like that, roughly. Could be a little less. And she fully admitted, I don't know anything about this, 
but she took a very big chance. She has a very mainstream audience. And you can imagine her father wouldn't be thrilled with the things I have to say. She was absolutely respectful. You can watch, she listened intently. And that told me something, that she was willing to take the chance with all of these so-called left podcasters would not. Uh, with the three exceptions I named, Jimmy Dore wasn't actually there, but with the exception of Chris Hedges and yourself uh, together today with Aaron. So I want to acknowledge that, that you were willing in your case to have me on not once, but twice. Uh, so I want to pay my little tribute. Thanks, Norman. Well, it's a fact. Yeah. I mean, and you, can check, you can check YouTube. Yeah. It's just three and Michaela Peterson. Great. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll link to. Well, I'll just add on Michaela Peterson, it was interesting because several people commented on it. She had about 3,500 comments so far. Wow. And they've all been very positive about hmm. me. Interesting. Yeah. I wish she'd have you debate her father. That would be great. Uh, I wouldn't want her to have to take sides. Right. That would be awkward. Yeah, I'll I'll link to the long interview that I did with Norman last week because um, he lays out uh, a lot of the things that we're talk we talked about today, and he quotes from William Lloyd. Well, he has me read William Lloyd Garrison, so that's interesting. Well, Norman, thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find your uh, Substack and your I wanna, website? I want to just mention since you brought that up. Um, let's see here because again it shows the difference between what a left look like and what it is today when william lloyd garrison replied to the nat turner rebellion and this was in the midst of the hysteria by the end of the nat turner rebellion the whites in the south killed about 200 black people it was just, they cut off their heads and put them on poles. Yeah, randomly, just went around, cut off their head and put it on poles. So William Gatson <laughs> took a real chance. And I'm quoting from the book now, North Carolina put a price of $5,000 on Garrison's head and Georgia offered the same amount for anybody who would kidnap Garrison and drag him to Georgia for trial. You understand the kind of conviction? I mean, he was a white guy. Or as we'd say nowadays, a white dude. And he was willing to do this for the sake of his principle and his conviction. And then you look at what's happening in Gaza now and these podcasters, these so-called left podcasters, who all they do is count their likes and their shares, are afraid 
to have what's, as I said, like the tallest building in Wichita, Kansas, the world's leading expert on the politics of Gaza. It's so pitiful. It's so pathetic. It's so nauseating to behold, to witness and to behold. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Norman. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye-bye.